Well, we're back in our study of First Peter, and uh, we're all the way up to chapter 2 in verses 4 through 10. I do realize that, but I want us to start in Ephesians. So if you could turn to Ephesians for just a moment. Now, sometimes we talk about salvation and becoming a Christian in terms of doing, and not meaning that you earn salvation, but when you become a Christian, then we, then we start to talk about, okay, what do you need to do? What does the, the Christian life consist of? What, kind of? what are the actions? What are the action points? The duties? You know, your commitments? What are you called to do? Sometimes we talk about Christianity in terms of surrender, cost, and sacrifice. But there are other places where the focus is not that as much as what you get. What you get in salvation. And so looking there at Ephesians, for example, look at Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed us. Notice the past tense. He's blessed us. It's a done thing. It's a complete thing. It is, he's making a statement on the, about what you have now. Nothing in that is saying you need to do this. Nothing in there is is saying, here's the commitment now you need to make. Now, there is that, but that's not the emphasis here. It's all about what he did at salvation for us and to us. It's past tense, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In other words, something took place at salvation that had to do with all that he gave you. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, raised us up with him. And then he goes on to say, seated us with him. So you put even just this, these two chapters together, blessed, made alive, raised up, seated. All of that doesn't have to do with what becoming a Christian costs us. Oh, it is important, Luke 14, to talk about what it costs us. But sometimes it's important also to remember what we gain. There is sacrifice. But those words describe salvation as what you get, not just what it costs, but what it pays out. The grace you have received, or how we, we have been talking about it, all the pieces of God's goodness. Are you aware of the pieces of God's goodness that have come to you at salvation? It's incredible. When you begin to line about and list it out and look at it. And I really think that Peter just couldn't get over it. Even towards the end of his life, and really we're towards the end of it right here as he's writing First and Second Peter. And he's still thinking about, I have salvation and it means this and it means this and it means this and it means this. And I just can't believe it. We're talking about the blessing of... Genesis 12 and Galatians 3 and so many other passages, passages that talk about the fact that God has blessed us at salvation. And you deserve none of it. You deserve none of it. Now how has he blessed us? First Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. That's what Peter wants to talk about. 
Now, the word blessing is another way of talking about privileges, the privileges of being a Christian. And you remember, we talked about the Christian life in terms of what we have received at salvation, being like a diamond with all the many facets that sparkle bright. And as it's being turned really on this velvet drop, this black velvet drop of life, it just makes that salvation burst with light. And you remember, we, t- we talked about the theme of this whole epistle being grace-driven, living in the face of a suffering-pressured life. In life, we suffer through many pressures. Pressures to want to be conformed to the world, to want to be like the world, to l- live for our sin and our own pleasures. Or just to respond negatively to affliction or trials. And what he is telling us, Peter, is each each turn that he has of the diamond against this backdrop just glimmers out little pieces of God's goodness to to us that that he's given us salvation. Now why is it important to know this? Why do we need to know this? I think for motivation. Sometimes that's the thing that you need when you're facing adversity. Just need motivation. Sometimes we can be like the guy who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And what he was saying is, I can see that this is true. I can see that this is what I must believe. But there's so much unbelief that I'm really bumping into in my own life, into my heart, as I see there's so much kind of, like I have willingness, but sometimes I have unwillingness. You ever feel that way? I, I, I really... Like, I I really want to walk the way he wants me to walk, but sometimes I'm looking out and saying, that looks hard. In other words, the surrender that we talked about, the, the sacrifice that we talked about, you might be looking at that saying, I really want to be that kind of Christian. Where I could say, hey, consider the cost. I did. I'm following the Lord, no matter what. The world behind me, the cross before me, right? No turning back. That's me. But boy, there are times when you do want to turn back. There are times when you feel like giving up. There are times when you're, you, you just have to admit this is a struggle that seems um, like it's the water's brimming. So he gives this as motivation. The Lord knows we all need to be motivated to keep running, running the race. We all need encouragement at this level, at the suffering, pressured life level. Now, if you're not a Christian, this isn't for you. You need to know that. I mean, your first blessing that you need is salvation itself. That's your first blessing. I mean, you need to receive the biblical gospel. You know, the good news is, not only does the Lord want you to, but it's right here. We're trying to give it every week so that you can hear it and know it and receive it and join in with us in this race. And that's good stuff. But as believers, this is the advantage that you have in becoming a Christian. The blessings. These are our privileges. Privileged members. These are the pieces of God's goodness out of his grace. You see, how do we know that Peter is talking about what we have in our salvation? Well, look at verse 4. He says, and coming to him. That is a statement about salvation. Coming to him. Coming to salvation. Coming finally to faith in Christ. Coming to that place where you, you receive the gospel. Where you received Christ. John 1.12, and as many as received him, he, he gave them the right to become children of God. He received him. That's salvation. When you come to him for salvation, you need to understand you come to the rejected stone, but he is a living stone. 
He died but is now alive. Now what does that mean? It means this, that God accepted the death of Christ on the cross as payment for your sins so that you don't have to face punishment anymore. Isn't that good news? All right, so what are those pieces of God's goodness? Ten of them. Let's take a look at that and remind ourselves. The first one is union with Christ. You come to the living stone, and then verse 5, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, what we learned there is that God is making this house with Jesus, and Jesus is the key living stone piece, and he's making it with you as a stone kind of stuck to him. See that? It's this spiritual house. He's the living stone. And and we're also living stones. And by saying that, he's saying that we have union with him as we're a part of this house. The house that he has built and that he is building and that he is using. And the materials are you and me as stones. That's the kingdom house. And that tells us that when you come to Christ, you have union with Him. Union with Him. All together, stuck together, pieced together like a house that's alive. That's good, isn't it? You know what's good about being stuck together? That we're, at least we're stuck with Jesus, right? I mean, so, sometimes I have to apologize to you. Say, I'm sorry you're stuck with me. But just remember, you got Jesus too, so that's good, right? All right, so second, access to God. There's that privilege. That's there, verse 5. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Now, you, you remember the Old Testament taught us you get to God through the priest. The great high priest is Jesus Christ. The priest took you right into the presence of God. And all Christians, he's telling us here, are priests. The Lord's priests. And we talked about that already. Went into some detail about that. We are the Lord's priests. And then third piece of God's goodness that we have. And that's an amazing privilege, right? Of being able to be a priest. Just go right into the Lord's presence. That's why Hebrews 4, you can say, right? That we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. It's amazing. Third piece of God's goodness that we have is security in Christ. Verse 6, in him you will not be disappointed. Imagine that, never a disappointment to God. Never, never. It's incredible. You say, how can that be? Because even just yesterday, I just, I didn't always follow the Lord yesterday. Well, because you're in Christ. In Jesus himself, of course, is never a disappointment. In Him, that is eternal security, always salvation, never disappointment. Fourth blessing, affection for Christ. And that's in verses 7 and 8. What's it say? To you who believe, He is precious value. To you who believe, Jesus Christ is precious. A real affection for Jesus Christ. You know, that's what really defines a person as being a Christian. Just love for Christ. He or she loves Christ. And out of that love, you obey Him, right? You want to obey Him. You know, the unbeliever doesn't love Him. No, the unbeliever might have the syrupy type of love where he or she says they love. And what they mean by that is they think He's okay. The unbeliever does not have love for Jesus Christ. He's not precious to the one who isn't a Christian. The world is precious. Money is precious. Sex is precious. External happiness is precious. Earthly family is precious. You name it, but not Christ. For the unbeliever, Jesus is a stumbling stone, what does it say? And a rock of offense. See, we could talk about all of 
the moral things that are out there all the time with some people. But once you begin to talk about Christ, it is a, an offense. It is a stone. He is a stone of stumbling. And, this, and the rock of offense that eventually says will eventually crush the one who doesn't believe in him. And then a fifth privilege chosen by God. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race. The Bible teaches God's election before the foundation of the world. It teaches purposeful, planned, irresistible salvation, not just for individuals, but to be a collection of people. Why? Deuteronomy 7. Here's the reason. Have you ever wondered that? Why election? Why is this even a plan? Why, why does the Lord do this? Here's why. Deuteronomy 7. Because God wanted to demonstrate his love. That's why. Love. <laughs> That's the issue with election. Love. No one is worthy of it. I mean, you weren't the best. In fact, you and I were the worst. And when I say that, I don't mean that other people thought you were the worst. You came to the place where you actually believed you were the worst. That's what God saves you. To show, he chose you out of his love. To show heaven and the entire world that God saves sinners. He chooses out of his love. And that's a massive privilege to be swallowed up by the love of God that way, see? Isn't it? I don't know all the things that are going on in your life, but I do know this. And if you belong to him, you're in that love. And so whatever it is that you're going through, it's couched with that love, that eternal love. That's incredible. And it's enough to be able to handle the thing that you're going through. And then we moved on to a sixth privilege last time from verse 9, reigning with Christ. Reigning with Christ. And you can say dominion with Christ. A ruling reign with Christ. That's what it means, by the way, when it says you are a royal priest. And we've already, we've already gone through uh, priest to priesthood and all that kind of stuff, but this is a little bit different here. We know in the future that we will reign with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation 20. We know that. Jesus told his disciples they would sit on thrones, right? But now listen. We don't have to wait to start reigning with Christ. Did you know that? We don't have to wait. We can do it right now. You say, how so? Here, I told you last time, I'll I'll remind you. What's the area we reign over now? Romans 6, sin. And we reign over sin in two areas. Mark it if you didn't do it last time. Here's how you reign with Christ. You reign with him publicly and you reign with him privately. You reign with him in the church and you reign with him confidentially. Any time we deal with sin in the church, we are reigning with Christ. Did you know that? 1 Corinthians 5, that's the point. When he says, remove the wicked man from among you, what he's trying to say is, you have a person who is sinning and they refuse to repent of that sin. And then what you do is you say, hey, listen, Jesus has a word for you right here in this book and he wants you to leave your sin because you claim to follow him. So leave your sin. And by the way, thus says the Lord, you must do this. Say, who are you to say this? I I reign with Christ. What are you talking about? I can tell you this. Now, not... Not as a meaty, 
right? I should come with love. I should come with grace, and so does He. But to just help you know, hey, Jesus wants you to live this way. Do you realize that? That was really our parenting. That was our parenting all the time. Say, when you have to sit there and say, hey, do this because mom and mom said so, or dad said so, as though you are somebody that has some kind of real reign. No, 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 no. You reign with Christ. So you come to that child and you say to that child, hey, I want you to, here's the reason why I want you to clean your room. Because Jesus wants you to. Did you know that Jesus wants you to clean your room? He does. What? When did he ever say that? Where is that in the Bible? Well, doesn't 1 Corinthians 14 say he's a God not of chaos but of order? Yep. Look it up. Verse 33. Okay. So, it's Jesus' words, right? Yep. Jesus wants you to clean your room. See? It's not that hard. Oh, boy. I'm preaching to the choir right here. I'm, I'm preaching to myself um, right here. I've gotta, I, gotta go, I think I've got to go clean my room. Um, hey, clean your room. All right. We reign with Christ. And any time we do not let sin reign over our bodies, we are reigning with Christ. So you do that privately, too. So we have this from our salvation. Coming to Christ, we get this privilege to deal with sin in the church and with ourselves. It's a tremendous privilege. I mean, think about it. We really wouldn't know what to do or how to live. And sometimes I think the church kind of walks around more like uh, the suggestion box, right? Say, hey, you might want to check your box. I put a little suggestion in there, right? What are we doing with suggestion boxes? We have his will. Just give it to us. Let's give it to one another. Reign with Christ to deal with sin in the church and with ourselves. Power to push it out from the church and clear it out from ourselves. Jesus is reign in those areas. Just like that song we just sung is why we sung it. Jesus shall reign. All right, let's turn the diamond a different direction and see another facet of brightness. Point number seven, separation for Christ. Separation for Christ. Peter says, but you are a holy nation. Now you remember we showed you that in each of these, that Peter has an Old Testament text that he's connecting it to. And so what's the one that he has in mind here? Exodus 19, verse 6. Now, the word for nation is ethnos. It, it's, uh, it's where we get eth, uh, ethnics, or ethnic from, ethnic group. A, ver- a group, of, a variety group, and then holy means to be separated. It's literally, you are a separated group, a separated ethnic A people of separation. By the way, the idea of a holy nation is also Leviticus 19.2, Leviticus 20 verse 26, and Isaiah 62.12. And there are other places. Those are just some highlights for you. Just so you know, this is not some type of uh, either new idea or something that he pulled out of air. Now you get to the New Testament and it is just tragic that Israel rejected Christ as Messiah and was set aside for now. It's really tragic. I mean, she was, to, she was called to be this people. All throughout the Old Testament she was called to be this people. But then you read Ephesians 2.15 and it tells us that Jesus made the two groups into one new man. So that now... Believing Jews, believing Gentiles, right here. To make a to make what? A holy nation. Isn't that good? A holy nation. A separated group. At salvation we have been set apart to God, set apart to be used for Jesus. Now we we need to kind of dive into this a little bit more. What does it mean to be set apart or to be separated? 
Set apart from what? And for what? I'm going to try to make this as simple as I can. We've already covered the idea of service with the point on royal priesthood and access to God. And both of those have to do with service. But I do not believe that he is saying here that we are separated for service. Okay? He's already made that point. That we are set apart for Christ to serve. That, that, that's true. But I believe here the point he's making is something else. What? Here it is. Separated or set apart for relationship. Separated or set apart for relationship. For intimacy. When God saved us, he set us apart from sin. He set us apart from the world and he set us apart from the devil, right? The word holy can also mean sanctified. We're a sanctified people. And what that means is set apart from what is unholy to be attached to God who is holy in relationship, okay? How did that happen? I'm going to show you. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 1. Now there it says, we are chosen. See the last three words of verse 1? We are chosen. Okay? Now notice what chosen people are set apart for. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. To set you apart. The work of the Holy Spirit to separate you. That's that word sanctifying. To separate you. To set you apart. Now that happened at salvation. You were set apart by the Holy Spirit. Notice, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with blood. Now what does that mean? That is the covenant commitment, okay? In other words, the Spirit sets, separates you to obey Jesus and to show that obedience and commitment to Him. That's what He said. We already studied that. In other words, salvation is a setting apart work. At salvation, he did this. It's the work of God through the death of Jesus and the application of the Holy Spirit to get you separated for Jesus. If he didn't do, you wouldn't do that unless he did that. He had to do it that way so that you would be interested in Jesus this way. Now think of all the things that you were separated from. Sin, hell, yourself, and how you always ruined your life, right? Separated from all of that. But watch this. It is the Spirit's work not just to do all of those things, but to separate you to Jesus Christ. Let me say it a different way. It's not just taking the bad things away. It's connecting you to your real true purpose. What is your real true purpose? Christ. This is what Paul meant when he said in Philippians 1, 21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, and in fact, when you read it in the Greek, it's even more more airtight. Live Christ. Die gain. Life is Christ. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Christ. That's what Paul said in Philippians 1.21. This is what Peter is saying here. Life is is Christ. We are separated to Him for relationship, for intimacy. That's why in 1 Peter 1, Peter uses the words, born again. That's behind the idea of what it means to be sanctified. Now let me show you from a few other passages so you can get the idea here about the idea of sanctified and separated and all that. 
going to kind of go sort of fast. Uh, you can try to follow. That's fine. But here you go. Uh, Acts 15.7. Paul is speaking here. And he says, uh, you remember he's speaking to that group, that council there at Jerusalem. And uh, because there, were, there was all kinds of things happening. You had these Judaizers and they were bringing a false gospel saying that it's by works. And uh, you, in other words, you have to be a Jew before you can be a Christian. And, he, and they were, Paul was saying, no, uh-uh. That's not the gospel. Acts 15.7. God made a choice among you, he tells them, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now that's sovereign grace. Verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now that is another way of saying God sanctified their hearts. And he did it by faith. He set them apart. He cleansed them. How did he do that? He took the rain of sin out of them. Here's another Hebrews 10.10. 10. By this will... That is God's sovereign will. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now that happened at salvation. It just means that we have been separated from sin, the condemnation of sin. And then the same thing in chapter 10, verse 14. Verse 15 applies to all believers. He says that this is for all believers. Now listen. Sanctification is a positional truth. To start with. And it is always a positional truth. It is important that it be a positional truth. Because outside of it, you and I have no holiness. Okay? We have to have this as a positional truth. You can't be acceptable before a holy God unless you're holy, right? So at salvation, He separates you from sin. But there's a progressive side to it. Okay? or a directional side to sanctification. And that is the work of God through the Holy Spirit to make you look like what you are in your position. In other words, this kind of sanctification, this part of sanctification is the work of God to make you look like who you are. To make you look like who you are. This is not the same thing as saying, like some people say today, hey, I'm just trying to be the best version of myself. Which kind of is, I don't know about you, when I hear things like that, I kind of, I go, I look around and go, I hope somebody's going to explain what that means because I don't have that. I don't, I'm not sure what that means. That's not what this is. What this is, is you positionally being placed in Christ and therefore being made holy and then sanctification that is progressive is you growing so that you look like that. There is a finished product and we want to grow to become more like that finished product. Set apart from sin, yes, Set apart from the devil and hell, yes. But it's more than that. It is set apart for God. Set apart to Jesus Christ. To Him. You belong to God now in relationship. In fellowship. And the more you live your life in Christ, the more setting apart there is. The more separation. So sanctification is both positional and practical. It is both a declaration and a direction. A life direction toward Christ. And you can see that in all sorts of passages like uh, Philippians 2, 12 through 13 come to my mind. Work out your salvation for it is God who is at work in you to do that. The other reason why you can work it out is because He's already in you 
having provided all that you need. Or Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. That's positional. Therefore, I no longer live. That's positional. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is progressive. The life I now live. There is a sense in which it's done, crucified. And then there's another sense in which the life I now live. But but you have to live that life, right? There's a third part to sanctification, that is perfection. So it's positional, it's practical, it's perfection. We're talking about the state of perfection. Say, when does that happen? Heaven, right? Final separation. So many places that give us the picture of it all. Titus 2, 11 through 14, for example, where it says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation, instructing us to do what? To deny and to live sensibly, to deny the worldly pleasures and to live sensibly and righteously in this present age. There's this separating from sin to Christ-likeness as a direction for life. And in Titus 2, it's all a work of God's grace through the Spirit. Now, the idea of, of it then is, is setting apart to God. That He owns us. That we now belong to Him. Colossians 1 says, We used to belong to the domain of darkness Now we belong to the kingdom of light, or like Paul put it in his testimony in Acts 26. Listen to this. He said, God sent him, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and that inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. In other words, who have been set apart by faith in me. Separated. Salvation is sanctification. And as an unbeliever, you belonged to the dominion of of Satan. And now, as a believer, the dominion of God. Separated to Him. It's the answer, Christian. When you're at school, people say, why don't you do those things? Well, I'm separated to Christ. I don't even know what you're saying, that believer will say when you say that. But it's true. It's true. Because I belong to Him. Now what does that mean? We are a people of separation. What does that mean? Well, let's start with what it doesn't mean. Let me just say this. It, it doesn't mean isolation. Will you make a note of that? Separation is not isolation. See, why do you say that? Because that's what the monks thought. Sometimes we think of Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, be separate, and we think it means be isolated. That's not what this means. You know, it doesn't mean, uh, you know, you're at school and the cafeteria and everybody's eating and you're way over there in that corner, way, way, way over there because you don't want to be contaminated. So you isolate yourself. That's not what he's saying. The Pharisees were into isolation. The monks in the early Catholic days believed sanctification was isolation. And they did some strange stuff. They went places. I mean, we're talking about years. They would, they would go out as hermits into the desert and they would just stay there in the wilderness because they, they knew that's where holiness was. That's not what he's talking about. Because, by the way, sin can follow you into the desert and it doesn't even need a GPS, Okay. 
That's not the idea of separation in Scripture. Not talking about isolating yourself from the world. Jesus had no problem eating with sinners. The Pharisee way is Matthew 23, cleaning the outside of the cup, whitening the outside of the graves, but the inside is full of dead men's men's bones. The Pharisee way is putting the paint on. The Pharisee way is all about optics. That's only outside work. That's isolation. It's also not the Colossians 2 kind of way of spirituality. Well, you could call it the stoic way. The, the self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, body to battle the flesh way. Paul says it will never work. It will never work. You can't get rules to make you holy. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's what it says here. It's not the separation of stoic or pious people, people that pretend that they are above the bad. You know, we don't drink, don't chew, don't go out with girls that do. I mean, that's that's not what he's saying. It doesn't make you holy. That's... Our separation, they say, and they just squeeze out emotion to make it look like they're serious about spiritual things. And they just try to make it look like they're a thing. But that's not the separation of 1 Peter 2 9, a holy nation. So, what is it? It's separation. For a relationship with Christ. That's what it is. It's James 4. Draw near to God and he'll, he'll draw near to you. It's 1 Corinthians 6. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, by the way, that's the lowercase s, spirit. In other words, you're one heart with Jesus. The next two verses, they'll say, if you join yourself to sexual immorality, you join Jesus to that too. Is that, I don't know about you, but that hits me in the icky way. So, ooh, oh, no, no, no. I don't want him to be joined to anything like that. Well, then don't be joined to that yourself. Isn't that terrible? But that means that we are separate for a relationship with Christ. And all of that is what it means to be a holy nation, a separated people. There's an eighth piece of God's goodness, a blessing blessing or privilege. Point number eight, possession by Christ. Let's call this one possession by Christ. Verse nine. Here comes another Old Testament uh, text for Peter. But you are a people for God's own possession. Now now this is Exodus 19.5. So we go back one verse where it says, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. Uh, I'll give you a few others. This also might be Isaiah 43, verse 21. You remember, Peter had Old Testament coursing through his veins. Okay? Isaiah 43, 21 says, the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. He could have that in mind. There's lots of other texts. Um, Malachi 3.17, for example. Malachi 3.17, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. Now let's break this down. The word possessed means to acquire for a price, to purchase. It's connected to redemption, bought with a price, purchased by his blood. All right, so follow how possession works in God's plan. This is so good. We're just, just using, all I'm doing is just using the text here from First Peter. Okay, he chose us. So we're sovereignly selected, right? That's the, the first thing he told us. Then we were purchased. How? So just because you're selected doesn't mean you're saved yet. We have to be purchased. How? cost was the blood of Christ. 
How do we know that it was a real payment, a real purchase? Because there was a down payment that was given. What down payment was given at salvation? Ephesians 1.14, the Holy Spirit. You can also, I think it's 2 Corinthians 1.22. You go and look that one up. 23. All of that speaks of possession. All of that tells me is that we, when we become Christians, we belong to Jesus. We belong to him. We're his. Now, two passages, and there are lots, but listen to these two that really uh, uh, underscore this. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. It's a clear connection. I'll give you another one. Write this down. In fact, write down the whole chapter. John chapter 10. Write it down because here in a few weeks we're going to be here in, in, uh, in our flock groups. Jesus says, you remember this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, and I know my own. And my own know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep. Listen, he has them. He owns them. Again, I come back to you to say, why do we fight so hard for free will? He owns you. You're his. It's the best place to be. Listen, I don't want I don't want to live in free will. I want him to help me with my will. My will's my problem. Help me, Lord. They belong to him. Verse twenty seven. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You see that? That's a by the way. Noun uh, lesson here. There's this thing called the genitive, right? And that is a noun of possession. And that noun is used all throughout, both as as a pronoun and as a noun, all throughout John 10. Mine, 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 mine. Possession by Christ. See, see how long does that possession last? Forever. Are you sure? Verse 28, no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's the privilege. We're his. That's what this point is. We're his. There's a ninth piece of God's goodness. Point number nine. Let's call this one illumination unto Christ. You could say sight unto Christ. That's also good. That's that's the word I really wanted to use. But I guess illumination kind of ties into the very word that's used here. But... Sight, spiritual vision. Able to see things spiritual. Verse 9, him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now what happened at salvation? He called us, but notice, out of darkness. Now what is darkness? Darkness is the terrible condition of the unregenerate. See, what condition is that? The inability to see. It's terrible. Ephesians 2, Satan is called the prince of darkness. So to be in the darkness is to belong to Satan. Every unbeliever belongs to to Satan. First John 3, he calls him the seed of the devil or the child of, of, of the devil, he says there. And when you see darkness in the Bible, it has to do with two things. So let me give this to you here as we kind of work this through. 
It always has to do with two things, or it could deal with one of two things, okay, when talking about light as it relates to um, spiritual things. It has to do with morality, and it has, has to do with understanding. Let me say it this way. It has to do with knowing the right things in your mind, and it has to do with knowing the right things to do. If you want different words, you could say ignorance and immorality. What is an unbeliever? What's a non-Christian? Ignorant and immoral. Don't judge them. That was you too. Dark in your understanding. Ephesians 4. Dark in your morality. Intellectual darkness, can't see truth. Immoral darkness, you can't see righteousness or holiness or purity. You don't even know what it looks like. And you're not interested in it. You kind of shrug the shoulders and go, eh, that's, I don't know, that's your morality, but it's not maybe my morality. No, no, we're talking about Jesus' morality. Okay, whatever, you, Jesus. That's how the unbeliever sees that. So you don't know what is right, you can't do what is right. That's why you don't turn to Christ. You can't turn to Him naturally. So back to our passage, look at verse 9. Him who has called you. That word call has always has to do with God's effectual call to salvation. Yes, there's a general call, but in Peter's epistle, called is always God's sovereign call to salvation. Always God's sovereign call to salvation. The inner call that results in salvation. Take a quick tour with me. Look at 115. But like the Holy One who called you, Chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this very purpose since Christ suffered for you. Chapter 3, verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose. Chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory. Called always has to do with the effectual call of salvation. Notice another thing. The call is out of darkness. Picture yourself being in the darkness bubble. Here's the darkness bubble. And there are all kinds of things that take place in the darkness bubble. It's how you think. It's what you do. And when he calls you, he calls you from this darkness bubble, out of it. Pulling you out of it. You were in it. It was in you. And the only way out of it is to be called out of it. This isn't the story of how you were searching in life for some meaning and then you found the light. Not at all. You had no interest in the light. In fact, the Bible says you loved the darkness. You say, are you sure? Yes. John 3.19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's why God had to call you out of that. Because you were loving it. I'm so thankful that he did that for me. Now what happens when you come into the light? Well, you can see. You get sight. That's the privilege, sight. We are people of sight. That's the John 9 lesson, sight. Intellectual light, moral light. You can see truth and you can see sin and righteousness. We know what's right. We can do what's right. Truth and obedience, right? Grace calls you out of darkness into his light. Notice, not just light, but his marvelous light. What's that mean? Great light. Incredible light. 
better than anything you can have in the darkness. You know, we used to settle for darkness and loved it because we thought it was thrilling. And I'll tell you this. Well, you know what's wrong with sin and what's wrong with evil? It's because it is the lowest level of pleasure that there is. It's low-level pleasure. And you settle for it. That's why Jesus said in John 10.10 that he offers abundant life. Not just life, abundant life. You know, when we were in darkness, we loved it because we thought it was thrilling. We thought it was a, a rush. I mean, man, I'm getting away with what, 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 what my lusts want. I mean, this is sweet. This is awesome. I get to do with my, with my lusts want. It's a lie. Darkness wasn't marvelous. It deceived you. But His light is marvelous greater than anything found in the darkness. Let me give you a next point, number 10. Let's call this one compassion from Christ. This is privilege number 10 or goodness number 10. I almost called this forgiveness from Christ so you can get the idea or mercy from Christ, but compassion I think covers it all. Look at verse 10. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's another Old Testament text. Say where? Hosea chapter 1, Hosea chapter 2. See if I can connect you with the context there in Hosea. Hosea 1.6 goes like this. Hosea takes a wife. Um, She has children with him. And God has Hosea named them names that relate to the judgments for Israel. Verse 6, She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. The Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, or battle. And then she had another child and gave birth to a son in verse 9 named him Loami for you are not my people and I am not your God so this is the judgment but watch this verse 10 yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered and in the place where it is said to them you are not my people it will be said to them you are the sons of the living God by the way Paul gives the same quote of Romans 9 to say that God has opened the door of salvation to the Gentiles. Now what is the point? You have a people that have been a people and should be a people of God, but will not be. And you have a people that were not a people of God, but will be. How? Mercy. Mercy. Passion. What a privilege for us. I mean, that's what First Peter 2 10 is saying. It's the privilege of mercy or compassion for us. What's mercy mean? Mercy is pity. Mercy is God keeping back punishment. We deserve it. He keeps it back. Isn't that good? You can see all throughout the Bible that there are two kinds of mercy. Jesus made that clear. Remember when he said that the unbeliever has rain for his crops and sun for his crops and he gets to enjoy that all the time and that's just God giving him general mercy every day. General mercy. I mean, a beating heart. Every day, that's mercy. I mean, you breathe air every day without telling your lungs and mouth to just breathe, right? That's mercy. General mercy. You know what general mercy is? Mark this. It is just the suspension of hell. That's what general mercy is. It's the suspension of punishment for our sinful condition. 
that's general mercy. Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. But there's a second kind. We could call this special mercy or particular mercy. It's mercy to the sinner. That's the kind that the guy in Luke 18 cried out for, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the kind the blind man Bartimaeus cried out for to Jesus. It's the kind that the rich man cried out for in hell after he died in Luke 16. You remember this? He wanted Abraham to show mercy, to spare some water, to cool himself for a moment. And Abraham said, you had your chance in life. Now it's too late for special mercy. And then the guy said, well, can you then warn my brothers? They're still alive. Go warn them. Abraham said, no, they have the prophets. They have the word of God. But the guy said, well, that's not enough. But if somebody comes back from the dead, that maybe they'll listen. And Abraham said, even if somebody came back from the dead, they would not listen. Why? Because they love their darkness. You know, for the unbeliever, God keeps that judgment away until death. That is his mercy. But for the believer in Christ, the elect, God gives mercy by forgiving all his sins. Why? Because Jesus paid for them on the cross, right? Why is God like that to his elect? Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? Did you hear that? The remnant of his possession. Boy, it's loaded with all the stuff that we've been talking about. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You ever wonder why God chose us? One answer is this, to display his mercy. That's what Romans 9, 14 through 18 was saying to us. The one who is a Christian understands that mercy. He loves God for his mercy. He feels unworthy of it. But he can say with David in Psalm 86, verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Oh, grant your strength to your servant. Paul latched on to that too. 2 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What's the privilege of mercy for us so we can use it as mercy to others? What a privilege. All right, those are the ten. But there's actually one more. So why didn't you include it with the 10? I don't know. No, actually, I do know. Uh, It's because of the phrase, so that. Look at it. It's verse 9. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, of Christ. Bonus number 11. (laughs) It is to be an announcer of Christ. We are an announcer of Christ. This is the privilege of being a proclaimer and announcer. The word proclaim here means to advertise, to publish, to tell out. We are publishing. What are we publishing? Excellencies. I love what this word means. It is sometimes translated mighty acts, but it literally means it was used to describe heroic deeds done by another. Isn't that good? You know know what we are? You know what privilege we have? 
we have the privilege of announcing to the world the heroic deeds of Jesus. We are the announcer of Christ's heroic deeds. See, what are Christ's heroic deeds? Well, anything he did, but how about we take him to the cross? Show them. Tell them what Jesus did. Isn't that what Jesus told us, Matthew 28, 19 to 20? Go tell them what I did. Teach them what I taught. All right, as we bring this to a close, here we go. Why do we have all these pieces of God's goodness given to us at salvation? Why all these privileges? Will you notice that every single one of them is connected to Christ? Union with Christ, access to God because of Christ, affection for God in Christ, a love for Christ, security in Christ, verse 6, in Him. You who believe Jesus Christ is precious, chosen by God to be in Christ, reigning with Christ, separated to be like Christ and near Christ, possession belonging to God because of Christ, sight to see Christ, compassion and mercy from Christ. Why? So we can tell others about Christ. We have all of that. So we display Jesus and make much of Him. That's why. This is how God gets Jesus visible to a lost and dying world that needs Christ by giving His own all of these privileges. See it? Oh, that we would be this kind of church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. We are unworthy of Him. And we are thankful that we have Him and that He has us wanting to be servants. We, at times, Lord, are just haggard at best. But we're so thankful and we feel privileged. We see it. Pray to your Lord that you will guide us way you want us to be guided this way. Help us to be those people that do make much of Christ. And may we stand out for all the right reasons, Lord, so that we can bring people to you. And as we learned about last Lord's Day, that we might boast in you. Will you do this work through us for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.